Steve, Cakery Wilson. Hello and welcome to episode 5 of the Lower Error Podcast. I'm David Smith and I'm joined today by Marty Gillespie, Podge Gaffney, Franny Walsh and Oren Fitzpatrick. Today we're going to be discussing Transatlantic by Colin McCann, but before all that we'll uh, check in with the lads. Podge, how's things with you? Friday night Irish time? How's things, Smith? Yeah, all good. Just finished now for, for midterm. So uh, <laughs> it wasn't too long ago and I was talking about spring break. So yeah, another week. Uh, off, which is fairly mad yeah so yeah decent weather today so it was, it was meant to be raining all week and just happened to be actually quite nice uh going camping tomorrow for the night so bought a tent back in september finally using it for the first time looking forward to that other than that uh no real plans made might go home to navin see the folks maybe on the bank holiday Unreal. where are you going camping uh we're gonna go down to british bay in Wexford so I was there last July with some friends just kind of randomly so my girlfriend Ziz used to go there when she was used, used to go there camping when she was a kid and it was like a plan last minute plan b at the time we're like we couldn't the place we were meant to camp we weren't allowed so Ziz suggested British Bay and ended up being unreal just camping in the dunes and there were toilets there and it was lovely so yeah got a chance it tomorrow meant to be a bit of rain tomorrow but I think it's scattered but look we'll plow on and hope for the best Unreal. That sounds sounds like a good midterm. Marty, you're in midterm then too, are you? Yeah, I'm off for the week too. Um, it's unusual for my place now, in fairness, to have a week off in May, but I'm glad of it this year, I have to say. Yeah. And yeah, like Podge is saying, you know, the good weather really makes a difference. And uh, this week was the first week that the tennis came back. And so I've been out three of the last four days and it's just been such a an extra hit of serotonin. It's brilliant, you know, probably closer to the happy Gilmore tennis than anything else but it's just great to be out in the out in the sun like you know happy days yeah I'd say so I saw the golf courses and everything are back open too so a lot of lads are so good Franny I'll come to you next how are you in Barcelona yeah not that much really kind of like we're still on not too bad of a lockdown but like we can go to bars and stuff until five o'clock in the evening and then we're on a or on a 10 o'clock curfew as well so yeah just kind of Doing a lot of drinking outdoors and general enjoying the sunshine. It's kind of, kind of summery here now, so it's not too bad. You go, <laughs> yeah. yeah, we go into it a bit. Uh, it gets very busy if it's anyway sunny, like the main beach. So it's kind of um, it's hard, and it's, there's a lot of like pickpockets and stuff around here as well. So you wouldn't want to be going in swimming if your stuff was kind of exposed, or whatever. But um, there's not a nice parks and stuff around that we kind of just like you know sit around and they're fairly chill about drinking outdoors here and stuff. So it's grand. You can kind of just do what you want and enjoy the sunshine. Good stuff, Oren. It's a nice, uh, sunny Saturday morning in Sydney. What's the plan? Going to a footy game of just in Curl Curl, just a couple of minutes up the road this morning. And then Claire's man turned 60 yesterday. So happy birthday, Grace. I know she's an avid listener of the podcast. And yeah, so yeah, just going for, out for some food and probably a couple of drinks for that, just to celebrate. And um, yeah, that'll be me. Happy days. What's How are you going, Smith? You had a bit of a rough start today, did you? Yeah, I may have, uh, the time may have gotten the better of me this morning. Luckily, you were on hand to give me a quick call and hold me back to reality. The time difference is a struggle. Yeah, I've only been here two years, like it's still, still getting used to it. Um, Yeah, I'm not doing too much either. I had a match last night, a soccer match. It was nice playing under lights and then go for a bit of food, breakfast now today and maybe a few drinks tonight. That's about the height of it. Nice, nice. Okay, lads, I think we'll uh, get stuck into Transatlantic. Pod, you picked the book. Uh, do you want to tell us why you picked it? 
Yeah, um, so I, I, I took a fair risk um, recommending this book because I had only read, uh, I'd say, 30% of it before I suggested it. That kind of shows, uh, I suppose, the first third at least was good enough, in my opinion, to recommend it. Yeah, funny one, funny enough book to review, I suppose. I suppose anyone who hasn't read it, it's kind of goes forward and back through time a wee bit so it's it's a funny one to kind of get your head around at the start the first so split up into three books uh the first book you'd swear you're reading a book about short stories involving the atlantic ocean involving ireland and america relationships famous figures in the past then going into the second book the storyline obviously uh, changes quite a bit it kind of just the the speed of it the tempo of the book fell away a, a little bit for me comes back around again in the third book so kind of roller coaster i suppose uh, overall i did enjoy it i'm interested to hear what all the lads think to start by talking about the alcock and brown story the first story in the book that was a great introduction to the book and um, kind of similar to yourself smith i my kindle my kindle highlight reel is has never been as full i actually really liked the style of this book i thought it really captured the achievement of the transatlantic flight. I don't know if any of you were looking up uh, any images of of it afterwards, but the the image of the plane landing in in Connemara. I was showing it to my class, and I couldn't believe it. You know, it's such a, a, a stark contrast to what we expect from flight now, or assume is the safe standard. You know, when they was talking about the linen wings, the linen in the wings, the guessing of measurements, and uh, I thought that was really well described. For me, it kind of got better from when the conversation went from whenever all they could do was write letters write notes to pass to each other you can just imagine I can just imagine being in the back of a car with the exhaust gone and you can't hear anything at all the rattle of it I thought it was described very well and yeah no I thought it set, set up the book very well for, for the rest of it yeah Marty I'd agree I think the book got an awful lot better once the two boys got into the cockpit I think throughout the book maybe this is why it got better there I don't think it was a great job done on the dialogue obviously the, the writing was extremely poetic so when they're in there and as the boys have described there with um, just the slight alterations to their dials you know to their measurements it just created a massive amount of suspense for me which I thought was great and this image of the two boys and there's nothing between them and they're cruising across the Atlantic one thing goes even slightly wrong they're hitting the water they won't be found you get an idea then of the history and the timeline again as you say when they hit Ireland because it's a, a transatlantic and it's the Irish American sort of relationship and all that and a lovely view of Ireland and it's this romantic place and they land and like the first thing your man says oh it's a second bug like that's what's brilliant like just and you think you have it sorted and you've made it and you're done Ireland throws it back at you I started this and uh, I it did not give me like much optimism for the rest of the book I was like this is just overall to the point of absolute torture I was like Jesus this is so long winded so like I suppose at that point I didn't appreciate that there was like a greater relevance in the other stories to the Alcock and Brown story so I kind of thought this is just it I feel like he's just beating you over the head with descriptions of like being in flight and flying through clouds and like there's like turbulence or whatever else and it's just for what it was I felt it went on for far too long now later on in the story and like when Brown came back into it there was a really interesting kind of exploration there and like I felt like his his journey was something that really kind of provoked a lot of thought but yeah the way this is written I thought it was a bit overdone slightly would be my uh, my overall kind of analysis on it I just love the contrast of the two boys just how they balance each other out so well they're so beautiful really isn't it like just how simple compared to modern flight or whatever like and and 
and just how much they needed to know. Um, there was one little passage actually, I just have it highlighted, and I actually have the note beside it saying expert, and it was just like um little calculations he was doing, keeper nearer 120 than 140. Um, and as soon as he shoves the note across the tiny cockpit, Al- Alcock adjusts the controls ever so slightly, trims the plane, all these kind of little bits of bobs of language, and I just thought that was deadly. I actually had a quote that I'd highlighted from just later on in that paragraph or just after where he's talking about all the tiny details that could like influence whether to get there or not and can be so confusing he finished it off by saying the inner ear balancing the angles until the only thing that can be truly trusted is the dream of getting there yeah I absolutely loved loved that chapter and as I said to start like all of a sudden then you go into talking about Frederick Douglass and you're like even if it, just, if it just finished there and it finished with Ireland a beautiful country a bit savage on a man all the same Ireland it was just really really nice I think it might have been Alcock who said it to Brown, if your life doesn't flash before your eyes, old boy, does that mean you've had no life at all? I really like that. When they were afraid they might go down, it was such a little gesture. I think it was Alcock saw, looked up and saw Brown kind of tucking the flight log into his jacket. And the line was, Alcock catches him out of the corner of his eye. Such glorious idiocy. Pilot's last gesture, save all the details. The sweet release of knowing how it happened. I thought that was just brilliant. I feel like they were well-developed. As Franny mentioned, it was really interesting when Brown came into the story later on. And like Marty, I felt then I could go back. There was a line in the first part of the book about sometimes when you go up in a plane like this, not all of you comes down, uh, which I thought was really applicable then to Brown later on when you meet him. He's kind of a much different man than we meet earlier in the story. It doesn't matter how much you add to that story, it'll never be as crazy as the real thing. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'd actually sitting back and going, they actually did this. Like, it's just insane. The achievement of that transatlantic flight, it was still conveyed later on in the book, you know, when Lottie, when she was going back to visit her mother, Emily, and she said it was weird having your shoes off on, on the flight. And I think that's something a comfort that we are a luxury that we're so used to and uh, in the stark contrast to Alcock and Brown did they have like <laughs> snow like all over their feet and everything like nice little comparison okay. there. Uh, yeah and I just I really liked how the, the scale of the achievement wasn't just left behind us in chapter one I liked the kind of importance it placed on why the flight was so important as well that Europe needed this and the world needed this after World War II after all the destruction I think there was a beautiful description of Europe being a crucible of bones and just the whole idea of repurposing the plane for like this destructive plane for such a creative mission I thought was a really touching idea. That uh, reminds me of Smith, one highlight in particular I just absolutely loved. Are you ready for the unification of the continent? That was one of the lines in that story. I just thought that, like, that, that summed it up in a sentence, how yeah. big it was. Another one that was, this is a human victory over war, uh, a triumph of endurance over memory. I thought that was very poignant as well. Uh, yeah, so we'll move on, I think, to the second story, which was about the former slave, Frederick Douglass, uh, his visit to Ireland, which was really interesting. I didn't know much about him before I read the book. but uh, I actually have an interesting fact about this one, right? So I do, uh, I cover like American politics for work. And there's this thing in, in Washington at the moment, in Congress, there's a debate about making Washington, D.C. the 51st state. So like the Democrats want it, the Republicans don't. And there's this big debate and there's a bill going to be passed all over. But if Washington, D.C. does become a state, because Frederick Douglass lived there for like the last 17 years of his life, right? So if it does become a state, then its official name is going to become State of Washington, Douglass Commonwealth. Rather than District of Columbia. Yeah, because the District of Columbia, I think, is like a federal government kind of carve out thing. So that's going to be its own thing, like separate, and then there's going to be the state. Yeah, I just came I came across that, funnily enough, like there about two weeks ago. But um, in terms of the chapter, yeah, it was probably one of the... I think so. it probably was the longest one, I'd say. 
I think someone said that, but I, like it did, it like it was, it did stretch on for a while. And for that, I felt it didn't really actually cover all that much. Like I felt he was just kind of there. And then he was kind of in Dublin for a while and he went down to Cork then and there was like, he was kind of, but I felt like, I don't know, just tipping around for a long time and there was kind of a lot of reflection on how bleak Ireland was. And again, it was obviously beautifully written, but there wasn't all that much progression in that time. And you nearly felt a little bit frustrated about it because you were kind of thinking, I wouldn't mind a more detailed exploration of what's actually going on here because it's obviously very interesting history and he's obviously like a very interesting man but in saying that I thought that was probably where the book was at its best in terms of description like I thought like the desolation of Ireland and how he portrayed that I thought was just in that chapter specifically was just incredible like it was just you really got this sense of how awful it must have been and especially coming from I suppose the perspective of someone who was born into slavery and who knew that and who kind of, who could, who could kind of draw a parallel between that brand of, of awfulness and what he saw in Ireland then. And like the way it was portrayed through his eyes and I thought the way it was written, it was just, it was really excellent. Yeah, this is my favorite story of the lot. I came across Frederick Douglass. I follow a page on Instagram called Black and Irish and they post up really fascinating stories of historical figures. And one of the, fi- one of the figures was Frederick Douglass. And I was reading about it, and from that post, I went down a bit of a rabbit hole on Google and Wikipedia and all sorts, reading about this man. And I shared this particular story onto onto my own story, and it was there that my aunt Maraid, who I mentioned in the last pod, said there's a brilliant book called Transatlantic, um, and Frederick Douglass appears in it. And my aunt posted me the book. Um, which she often does whenever she thinks there's a book I like. Three or four days later, there'll be a package at the door and Maraid will have sent me a book. So yeah, thanks Maraid. And then I ended up going to the the Literary Museum in Dublin and special um, exhibition on Frederick Douglass there. So I was like, myself and Ziz went and checked it out. And if you haven't been, it's fantastic. But there was a whole display on Frederick Douglass there. And I was, after reading the first part of Transatlantic, when I was there so I had a bit of obviously you know the story itself in the book isn't historically accurate especially the part with maybe O'Connell and the meeting but it was still just so fascinating and like Daniel O'Connell such a massive figure in Irish history and the fact that these two massive figures met uh, even just the idea of it is, is is just amazing to me but um yeah the story was was brilliant um really really powerful there were so many, like he talked about highlights. I had so many highlights on this. Um, McCann's use of language in this was so good, so powerful. Like he, he, he lets us know of what Douglas experienced through little bits of language. I mean, there's one thing here that like the maid was loading plates onto a tray, so very pale. The proximity of her sent a shiver along his arms. Like little things like that that it shows his like maybe his post-traumatic stress of slavery and just still not trusting people who are quite pale or whatever um people in 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 privilege yeah i really enjoyed this as Pod said i'd love to have had this book on its own sort of thing this chapter and explore it a bit more deeply it was it was kind of done as a trip through and i wasn't like completely delving into generally anything i've kind of read i feel it's like a family during the family and it's their description of whereas this was like a completely somebody who you know was going through slavery and everything but then they're seeing this i did find it interesting i'm pretty sure um i can't post the word that frederick douglas i think used i think he put down the famine due to intemperance on part of the irish people which 
I think this book might be being a little bit nice to Frederick Douglass um, in, in how sympathetic, I guess, he was to the Irish people in the family. But, I mean, I, I don't know. I obviously need to read a little bit more on, on, on the whole lot. But look, as, as the boy said, the language again, um, the descriptions of Dublin, it did kind of have me pining for home a little bit. And even though they were talking about the Huddle City and the wet weather and everything, the rain and rain, but it's done in such a way that it kind of creates such a vivid vivid picture of it. You, you nearly love it. And I thought it was a great phrase. And like that, I was thinking, geez, I love Dublin, even though he was describing it as this kind of what you would think was a negative. He had a quote in there about... Um, she was a country that liked to be hurt. The Irish sheep coals of fire upon their heads. And I was like, that's, that's cast. Like, I mean, we just love to be negative and love to hate everything. And you hear a, a horrible view of the city and you're like, Jesus, isn't that great? It's lovely to be there. So oh, yeah, like I just, I, I, again, enjoyed the language, uh, enjoyed the chapter. Wish, wish it lasted for longer. One of the things I actually really, really enjoyed about this chapter was um, McCann's description of Dublin. He really, really... I like. I know this is this is back in back in the eighteen hundreds, but it's I I can still see the 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 um, tendrils of it today. You know, he talks about like the the grey rain, the relentless grey rain. That was rain, one of the things rain. I really enjoyed. That one line, rain, rain, oh, rain on rain. You have it there. That was I really enjoyed. Dublin was a, a huddled city. Not what he said as well. Yeah, perfect. Uh, there's a few. There's a few that great. Um, Descriptions of Dublin, and um, I, I like. I, I think there was so much squeezed into this into this chapter. I think it's a fairly integral chapter in the book. Like you really, you need to pay attention to to a lot of it. Like you need to know Lily, and you need to know Isabella Jennings. But you know, at the same time, I also have to say I did find this chapter long. I think if you didn't have an interest in an interest in Irish history at the time, you know, like I think what kept me ticking along was was the, the the images of the the smell of of the famine, like the the images of rot, the images of desperation at the port in Cove. Other than that, I can I could understand why someone might feel that chapter is long. Um, on a separate note, is you know he mentions about uh, fire Gurham, how he's referred to as a fire Gurham. And do any of you ever hear how why were why he's why they're called fire Gurham, like blue man as opposed to? You know, fire Gurham was like an evil. There, there's a lot to it, like you know yeah. what essentially Gwilga Far Dove, what the, what was used to be referred to as the devil, like you know the phrase "speak of the devil and he's sure to appear." So if you say Far Dove, that was you circumventing the the situation and not getting him. But there was also much more to it, like color is spectral, like and the spectrum of color is different to each language. Like for example, you know we talk about white wine and red wine, but neither of which are white or red. What Gurham refers to in Irish as is a dark colour that reflects the light. A dark colour that reflects light. So if you ever if you think of say like a sheep's nose or like the back of a the back of a crow, like the way it glimmers in the light, any dark colour that glimmers in the light was seen as gurum as opposed to as opposed to black. And that is why we say Dini Gurama as opposed to Dini Gova. <laughs> Marty, that's fantastic. You should, uh, you're reading a lot of Colin McCann there with these descriptions, the back of a crow and a sheep's nose. Very impressive. This book club's working wonders for you. <laughs> whiskey. It's the whiskey. Yeah, also, I thought a tremendous glass of whiskey, I think, is known for creativity <laughs> levels as well. Probably one of my favourite lines in the book was uh, towards the end of that story, uh, where Douglas said, 
British soldiers galloped past, green hats with red badges, like small splashes of blood against the land. The third story then is about Senator George Mitchell um, helping to broker the Good Friday Agreement in Belfast. Like the other two chapters, I like it's it's extremely well written, and I, I love the historical context of it. I think this is where I caught that yeah, there was some as Marty put it there, there was some lapsing going on with the different characters, and when he goes playing tennis with, I think it was the old lady, I kind of caught then that there must be a there must be something here. So I thought it was a very quotable chapter. I was and um, there's some great lines like there's always room for at least two truths. The glorious vanity of dying. The chapter was actually called Parabellum, and you know the Latin flags like uh, four piece, then prepare for war, sort of thing. So I thought, yeah, the language is brilliant. I would describe it was great. I thought it was nice to see the, the history of the Good Friday Agreement from that American side. Obviously, that's always there and part of the relationship, which is brilliant. But I don't think the rest of the book, as we'll get into, did this chapter justice, and I felt that kind of weakened its position uh, in the book for me to a certain extent. Yeah, I thought this was obviously like, I suppose historically nearly this is kind of the most interesting because it's the one that we were alive for. And I suppose we'd have a certain level of consciousness of the significance of Good Friday and stuff, but I'm not sure it's something that I would know that much about or certainly not as much as I would like to know or maybe I should know. It's always interesting to consider what that whole period was like and we don't really have that much of an appreciation for it, you know, because even like when we were growing up, it would have kind of been a li- just just kind of passed. And it's, it's, it's mad to think how close we are to that bit of history and stuff. And it's also, I thought, what that chapter did well was kind of maybe examine it from the perspective of an outsider. You know, like Mitchell is, is, is going on about his experience coming into Ireland and like at the start, it's like he can't really be arsed. Like, you know, it's this diplomatic mission that Bill Clinton sent him on and he's like, oh sure, like I just want to go home to my wife and my kid. Like, you know, I can't, like I can't be bothered with this stuff. It's, I suppose, it's mad to think about that and it's maybe the way that we would probably view difficulties abroad maybe sometimes. Would they not get on with it or would, would not be so simple if they just came to this solution? But it, it fails to understand, you know, the really the emotional context and the, the historical context and stuff like that. Colin McCann wrote this chapter with the help of George Mitchell and, and Heather Mitchell. And like, there's something really poignant about that. You know, you're you're experiencing this narrative and it's so close to what he, you know, he's, he's, he's directed it to a certain extent. You know, he's told Colin McCann, like, this is how it was. This is how I related to this person. This is how it went down. Yeah, there's something really kind of special about that, I suppose. So yeah, I really enjoyed the chapter myself. But it's probably one of my one of the ones I preferred. Yeah, same as that. I really enjoyed this chapter. And I remember going to get my first our our first computer when I was about seven or eight years of age. So this is ninety-seven, ninety-eight, maybe. Anyway, I remember going to get our first computer to get to the computer store, you had to go to Donegal Town and I remember we were on our way to Donegal Town it came on the radio that there was another bomb scare in the Abbey Hotel and I like I vividly remember saying oh not another one now this is me at seven or eight years of age I didn't really like it said bomb scare but I didn't really know what a bomb was but that's I think that just kind of gives it an indication of how recent it is but how serious it is but also how youth may have perceived it you know but anyway as the chapter went on yes I, 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 I did enjoy it that was the chapter that I made the connection that you know, yeah, this book was going to be interlinked together. It was going to be the lattice work of characters, the lattice work of, of stories. And I just really liked how it captured the, how momentous the achievement 
of the Good Friday Agreement was that was really captured well by Colin McCann. As we're chatting, I'm just noticing more and more kind of similarities between the stories. I mean, how Frederick Douglass witnessed the famine firsthand, the same way like Mitchell witnessed Good Friday Agreement firsthand. Like they were all these characters witnessing massive moments in Irish history from from um, from an outsider's perspective. And it was interesting to see their thoughts, like not even on the Good Friday Agreement itself with Mitchell, but also the mood around Northern Ireland and around Belfast at the time. And there was a few quotes as well that really stood out. And there was one that I, I just have a note as a powerful paragraph. Like some days he wishes that he could empty the chambers of the men, fill the halls instead with women. And he kind of goes on to describe just the everyday woman who have lost children and who have just felt the the sheer first-hand brunt of, of the troubles. And it just ends with, my son died, his name was Seamus. My son died, his name was James. My son died, his name was Padder. And it goes on and on like that. And you're just, every name you hit, you just kind of get, wow. Like, And he ends it with, my son's name is Andrew. Really found that impactful as well. It's like, do you know that old Irish song, Mrs. McGrath, where there's a line where it says, all foreign wars I do proclaim are built on blood and a mother's pain. So that kind of reminded me. I thought there was loads. There was another line in it as well about the fashion of wearing handkerchiefs in your sleeves and how it kind of faded out over time. But they said it was less sleeve, more sorrow. There was also another one. The Irish are great for their tunes, but all their love songs are sad and their war songs happy. Um, So many little tidbits of that throughout the book, not just in this chapter. This was the part of the book, as we mentioned earlier, at highlighting passages where I felt every page almost I was highlighting something. There was a line in it, Senator Mitchell's kind of attitude where he said, cynicism is easy and optimist is a braver cynic, which I thought was like a brilliant kind of attitude to live by. I thought that his take on not just the Irish side, but the British side, but where he was quite cutting, where he said they're embarrassed by what they've done for centuries in Ireland, ready to leave, to hightail it out of there. They would wipe their hands clean in an instant if only they didn't have to do it in front of the world. They seem stunned that Northern Ireland somehow exists. How did they possibly ever believe that country could have been good for them? What it all came down to was pride, pride in the rise and pride in the fall. In one paragraph to kind of sum up the whole uh, the whole issue from a British perspective. Uh, when he first came into Belfast, I know Franny touched on it, like he was getting his, his orders from Clinton and he was not indifferent to coming over initially, but he, yeah, he wanted to stay with his kids and his wife. And he said by coming into Belfast with the shadows of the Harland and Wolf falling over Belfast where the Titanic was famously built. And he said that um, he was going there in the vague hope of helping to turn the long blue iceberg, the deep underwater of Irish history. I just thought, so many I could sit here all day and read and just quote in a section so it's my favorite I don't know what you think about how the first half of the book bleeds into the second half I actually liked it (laughs) I liked how it kind of went from the focus on you know these real you know main players in historical events to bringing it into kind of a a more more of a family setting or how it might have impacted the family and kind of like what Podge was saying about how Frederick Douglass was a witness to the famine in, in Ireland and how George Mitchell was a, was a witness to, to the troubles, to the peace process. Lily Duggan, and obviously later Lily Ehrlich, she was a witness to many events in America that, you know, we probably just don't have as much knowledge on or truth be told probably interesting you know like like she was there for the civil war her son died fighting for the union she at the end of of her chapter in the first in the first which is icebox i think is the name of that chapter 
she when she after her after her husband dies and she takes on the ice business, she's going to town to sell things. And she comes across Frederick Douglass talking at a an event, and it's a it's a it's the start of the woman's suffrage, and it just shows that you know Lily was there as well, like that like she was she was kind of a, a witness to the to historical events as well. I know it's more into a. a story rather into the historical fiction we probably thought we were getting into in the first book but I actually really liked that I really liked the the characterization yeah it's just so I suppose for our listeners the the second part of the book and the remainder of the book kind of follows a succession of female characters who initially with Lily who was a kind of a side character in Frederick Douglass's story and she at the end of that story emigrates to America and then the second half of the book kind of follows her and her descendants. Like, I got what he was trying to do. I got what Colin McCann was trying to do. And I like the first person perspective of the impact of the famine and how our ancestors would have went over to America. And who's to know whether our, my ancestors, your ancestors, lads, had similar stories, you know, had similar um, events happen to them. You know, maybe they had no, like, uh, no other choice and possibly no other choice but to go to America on their own, maybe very young you know, suffer tragedies, suffer loss. And from that perspective, I really enjoyed it. But on the other hand, it's kind of hard to, to distinguish between the different stories and that that's maybe a problem and that kind of says it all. And then I suppose, I don't know if we're going that far in terms of the letter, like the letter is the, is the theme of the book, almost this letter that went with Alcock and Brown back in the first chapter. And we kind of, I don't think, I'm not too sure, does it, is it hinted at or, or is, it, is it talked about much in the intervening, in the, in the second book, but obviously in the third book, it's brought up again. And yeah, I just didn't really kind of care too much about it. It was just what made out to be this like, okay, this is the big finale or whatever. And then very anticlimactic and kind of was a bit disappointed, to be honest, with how the book went after the first one. Uh, I might be different to, the rest of you and that I found that the second half of the book or like maybe after George Mitchell was there it actually kind of started getting good for me like when he start, when he started tying all these uh, strands together and like when he started seeing all these various connections I really thought it started getting kind of captivating then and I thought as well the way he portrayed like this idea of Irish struggle and the various like struggles that Irish people have had to encounter down the years drew the connections from you know, the very earliest stories from, say, like Frederick Douglass's story right through to 2011 when uh, Hannah is, is struggling with the death of her son through sectarian violence and, like, you know, she's still picking up the pieces from that and, like, then there's obviously so many elements of her story that have been carried on from the very, from the other historical, from the other earlier ones. And I just thought there was something, particularly Hannah's story, I found the way he kind of tied together, there was a certain sort of a misery and it was just kind of, it all kind of collected with Hannah. And I thought it was just really like, there was something really special about it. There was like the desperation in her character, I felt he put across really well. I thought that the character of Hannah as well, I really enjoyed. Like she had a couple of kind of really acerbic sort of quotes. I have a couple of them quoted here, but I felt like when she kind of like, you know, she had just kind of got to a stage in life where she was just maybe she'd seen so much that there was a certain kind of disillusionment about her. Oh yeah, so when she runs into that woman on the bridge or on the on the ferry boat and she's going on about how the Queen visited and she was like, Oh, it's the actual Queen and Hannah responds, oh, I didn't realise there were multiple copies of the monarchy. <laughs> so I thought that was absolutely excellent. And it just kind of captured this kind of sour like uh demeanor that she obviously has from just like years of just putting up with shit basically. To sum up, like in, I, I have to kind of maybe disagree with the rest of you and that I thought that was kind of for me, that was like the best part of the book was was 
the, the, the latter part of it, I suppose. I find it interesting there. Overall, I didn't thoroughly enjoy the book. And I think historical fact and historical fiction for me just didn't really marry up all that well. I think it's really interesting that Fanny's kind of thought it was all facts sort of thing. And I could see exactly how, as I said. Once you get into the details, I think it's just, this is more a, a kind of a view on the book. When you get into the details and the quotes and the language and all that, it's a really good book. I think when you zoom out and look at it as a whole, for me anyway, I'm just like, oh, what's going on here? I would uh, like to see nearly two books, one of the historical facts, the way he did it, with maybe some fiction, and then the fiction of the Ehrlichs and that whole family tree. I thought it was a really cool idea with the family tree and how it spread out and how it crisscrossed across the Atlantic and all that was great. But yeah, just interesting after, uh, after you think that funny, I thought that was, that was deadly. I'm kind of in between parts of the latter half of the book. I kind of struggled through, but I loved Lily's initial story. I thought it was really good. Her kind of experience of emigrating to America and not knowing anyone, becoming the nurse in the Civil War because her son was fighting in the war, like dreading, but kind of knowing that inevitably his body would turn up in this hospital. And I liked the way she linked it back to Douglas, but she said that Thaddeus, I think her son's name, didn't fight. Like he fought for the Union, but it was nothing to do. He didn't care about Douglas or like an anti-slavery movement or anything. He just wanted to fight and... I think that's where it came in about the glorious vanity of dying was appealed to, which I thought was kind of an interesting spin on rather than him being inspired by Douglas. That was a nice little uh, deviation from what you'd expect. And I loved her story on the ice. I thought that was, I just found that whole her life progression really interesting. Then obviously her husband and sons were killed in that accident or how she built up the business regardless. She left her like her children and Emily, uh, she kind of nurtured Emily really strongly. And then Emily, obviously, I liked how they, they tied in there with Alcock and Brown. I thought Lottie's story was probably, I enjoyed her chapters the most, I think, as she grew older and when she went back to visit Brown, which we touched on earlier. I thought that was really interesting. And the letter kind of cropped up again. Then he had the letter, he gave it back to her. But un- conversely to Franny, I think the Hannah story for me fell a bit flat. Uh, I liked certain elements of it, but as Podge said with the letter, it's expecting the letter to be this big thing. Obviously, she's fighting the bank's, I just, yeah, it just didn't really resonate with me for whatever reason, that that kind of last part of the book. I enjoyed the the discussion of the troubles and her son Tomas being shot on the lake was obviously really tragic and sad. But I don't know what you guys thought of the ending, but for me, the ending, I thought, let the rest of the book down. Like the first third, first half of the book, I would, I absolutely adored, like with 10 out of 10 almost for me. And then I felt it kind of lost its way somewhat. The ending was was very deflating for me. I actually would have preferred them not to open the letter, to be honest, than to open it, to just leave. I actually thought, because as I was reading it, I could see I was near the end of the book, believed they were going to leave it in the envelope, and it would have left a little bit of mystery, and that's always a, that's sometimes a good thing, you know, to leave it open-ended. But then when it got to the point where they're going to open it, I was like, all right, there's going to be some cool reveal here. They were, they were hinting there's going to be something about Frederick Douglass, and I was thinking, great, what is it? And then it just turned out to be this very tame, small like letter, a, a greeting almost. And yeah, I just thought, right. I actually kind of liked the ending <laughs> in a way. Opening this letter could be deflating, but I thought it was nearly an extension of the of the desperation, like or an extension of the misery that the Ehrlich family tree were a victim of. Like all. All five steps of them, you know, Lily, Emily, Lottie, Hannah, or so well, I, I'm including Thomas in that as well. But if you include the four, the four women, you, they all, you know, encountered severe hardship. And I thought the letter being Hannah's last resort and it 
being a flop was kind of an extension of that. Like I re- what I really liked about then tied up with the start, as I mentioned after book one. I tried to I when I realized that Lottie was part of the I realized Lottie was Lottie Tuttle was in fact Lottie Ehrlich who was mentioned at the start of the book. I tried to look for other connections. Read the Frederick Douglass chapter. Couldn't make any connections. Went back to the start to the 2012 book and there were no names mentioned at all in that so of course I couldn't make any connections there but when I finished the book I you know recalled the fact that the chapter was named 2011 the Garden of Remembrance and it just clicked with me that the first chapter 2012 obviously preceded 2011 and I just thought the way that, that tied up when it didn't mention any names when we don't know whether it, whether it is Hannah that's staying at the house of the lock whether it's whether it's Avian Quinlevin that's staying at the lock that's a little bit of a mystery that you know I think that you were looking for Podge you know you, you do finish with that little bit of mystery and only if you follow the the loop of history so to speak you know I think what that little device did was that it it emphasized you know why we didn't know what was really going on at the time when we started reading that when we look back at history, that's when it makes when it helps. That's what helps us make sense of the present. I did like the last line of the book was it about we have to thank the world for not giving up on us or for not ending on us. I did like that. I thought that was a nice. Yeah, way. he actually ended. Uh, he ended. Let the great world spin with something very similar to that. I, mean, I remember it was something like it was some reference to the title. It was like the world kept spinning or something like that. But I remember like I found he tied the two books up very similarly in that it was kind of like this reflection on the continuation of existence and the world and like, you know, like shit going on regardless of all this, all this stuff that happens and all this like trauma that people go through. Okay, lads, I think it's time to move on to our rate expectations. I'm going to go with a six. Um, I think that's overall... For me, the book just missed the mark. I think it tackled too much. I think, when, as I said there, you zoom in, I think in parts it was really, really good. And all the way through, there were parts which were really, really good. And like, thinking back, I really enjoyed the, say, the image and the um, the story with the Ehrlichs um, building up the ice business and all that. I was thinking about steadily. Each chapter, each book in within uh, the book, I, I enjoyed. But yeah, I just thought kind of, I took a step back. I was like, yeah, that just hasn't tied together. He, he didn't do what he was trying to do well enough for me to give it a better rating. So for that, yeah, I just went with a six. Um, worth the read. I'd, like I thought, as, as, as we've all done, we've quoted from the book, um, which is great. But just, yeah, I, I want more from a book than just some, some good quotes, I guess. I think 7.5 is uh, a fair rating for this. It was between 7.5 and 8 for me. I find it a very informative read. I really enjoyed uh, the characters and how they interlaced with, you know, history and, you know, identity and just those kind of events that happened. And another thing that I really liked about it was how integral family was and you know you when you think of the Irish psyche like you know you really think of of the family around the fire as a, as a real central part to the Irish identity and I know we've talked about that before and when we were talking about Leonard and Hungry Paul about how the family dynamic is is such a, a central part to the Irish identity and I thought that that was never lost throughout the whole book like from Lily's generation all the way down to Hannah and Thomas and that really had a note with me uh, as well overall I learned a lot 
and I felt it hit a personal note in terms of identity and um, family and things like that. Uh, in terms of storytelling style, I probably might look for a bit more, but I think 7.5 is probably a fair overall rating for it. Yeah, interesting. Um, I would probably be more in line with Marty there. I'd probably go with a seven and a half as well. I suppose reading the book, you feel like a transatlantic Forrest Gump in a way. You're hitting so many massive times in history, both Irish and American. Um, Marty mentioned the Civil War. Then we have the the whole era of slavery itself, the anti-slavery movement. You have the famine. You have the Good Friday Agreement. You have many, many more. Um, Yeah, so I like that aspect, just kind of seeing all those written parts. I really love the historical fiction chapters. I suppose my my rating comes from, like, if I was to give the first half a 10 and the second half a 5, I suppose 7.5 fits in nicely. Like Irish identity is hit on so many uh, on so many levels or so many themes throughout, and um, kind of filter into that. But yeah, enjoyed it. Uh, I, I got a bit lost in the middle of it, to be honest. The stories kind of melted into one in, in, in a way. The different characters, the different generations. But overall, yeah, a good book, very well written, very moving, very quotable, as we said. And I think seven and a half is decent decent rating for this. Uh, it was actually, it was interesting what Paul said there about giving one part of it a 10 and the other part to 5. I think it might have been the first was better and the second was worse for, for Podge. But I was like, I, I thought the same because when I started off reading this book, I was like, I'm not going to write this very well at all. But as it went on, I really found myself enjoying it more. And I found particularly some passages and some of the way, like some of like the, the stylistic sort of things he did, I think were like, you know, they were 9 or 10 like. But overall, I felt it did drag. And especially at the start, I felt a drag. But overall, it was like, it was a great read, like, and I really did enjoy it. Um, so I'm going to give it a seven. I'm going to give it an eight, personally, for the reasons I mentioned of how many times I highlighted passages. I think there's a lot of quotes I'd return to. And as Padja Marty said, I really enjoyed the exploration of Irishness and the kind of different things that go with identity and family. So I thought the themes I found really interesting. Yeah, so I give it a solid eight. I think well worth a read and... Pod said, I might be careful about who I recommend it to, but I know a lot of people I think who'd really enjoy the book. So an eight from me. So that's a 7.2 average for Transatlantic. Nice one. So that brings episode five to an end, I think. Thanks for everyone again for listening and for all your feedback. It's hugely appreciated. Uh, you can always head over to lairera.com for more information and to keep up to date with our latest recommendations and podcasts. So we'll be back with you in a couple of weeks. Next up, we've got in our classic series, we've got Fahrenheit 451 by Ray Bradbury. We're looking forward to discussing that on the podcast. In the meantime, yeah, check out lairera.com and keep an eye on our social media pages for all the latest news and take care.